This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. If you want more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Jeffrey DeBelco. Dr. DeBelco is a professor, director of the Environmental Studies Program, and associate dean at the George Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. For 15 years prior to that, he served as director of the Environmental Change and Security Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., He continues to work as a senior advisor to the Wilson Center. We talk about the latest gulf between scientists and policymakers on climate change. Jeff, uh, on Black Friday, the government released a new report about climate change. Can, can you give us a summary of what that report said? Mm-hmm. So it's the fourth national climate assessment. It's a report that's mandated by Congress, done by um, scientists and experts across government as well as outside scientists. And it, it had a few bottom lines, bottom lines focused on the United States. So it included international considerations, but primarily for the United States were that The science was becoming even more certain about um, climate change, that it was those were changes that were present and that we're seeing as opposed to future ones over the horizon, that they were there were changes in store for all parts of the United States rather than just the driest or the wettest or just the coastlines is um, is often assumed. Um, that those changes were happening rapidly and at times with disastrous consequences. Um, And some of the extreme weather events were ones that we would have had those storms or had that fire season, but they were much worse as a result of um, the contribution that climate change made to them. And so it's present, it's now, it is uh, for everybody, and it's really, really serious that um, as a sense that uh, it's not that all hope is lost, but it requires aggressive action at both stemming climate change impacts, but also adapting to them and understanding that we're going to be and already are in a different place and a new sense of normal. And that's going to not just affect the people who pay attention to climate change, but it's going to affect all of us, where we live, where, how we work, um, how we move around, uh, how the food we eat, the food we grow. Um, and so it is uh, sobering reading, uh, but important reading. So is this projected to be 10 years out, 15 years out, 20 years out, next week? You know, it, it, give us some timeline. So one of the characteristics of a climate change discussion for the longest time is that it was a future issue. And I think this report, as some others recently have as well, make it quite clear, uh, not based on modeling some future, but on observable change now, 
that climate change is a today. It was a yesterday, today, and definitely tomorrow, and those longer-term timeframes. And so some manifestations won't come to pass for decades in the future, but um, there are plenty that are manifesting themselves today. And importantly, in order for us to successfully adapt or adapt with less disruption um, and have longer to evolve to a new normal, we have to act today, even for those manifestations that are, are, are a few decades away. Obviously, I haven't read the 1,600-page <laughs> report. Yeah. I, I've, I've read summaries, but you talked about disastrous consequences. Uh, part of those consequences alluded to in the report are economic consequences, not just human consequences. Is that correct? Absolutely. So uh, the report helpfully breaks down the different impacts in different parts of the country. So you can get a sense, for example, if you are in the Midwest, um, it's going to have a heavy economic impact on agriculture through when it rains, how much it rains, issues of heat and drought, and that those will have very direct economic impacts. There are ways that obviously farmers have adjusted over the millennia to what you grow and when you grow and such, but it'll be a very different um, agricultural picture in the Midwest going forward. Um, it will mean um, huge economic costs for the coasts uh, in terms of storm surge and um, saltwater intrusion and even for fisheries in terms of fish often spend some of their time in the, in, in the kind of coastal areas that are going to be fundamentally changed and affected. Um, and then as we've, we've seen with very tragic consequences, there's not going to be a fire season in the American West. It's going to always be the fire season. And in part, it's exacerbated by some really deep droughts. Um, but that is um, not going to be the outlier. That's going to be the normal. Let's break this down. We have all of these consequences. We have a government report that's across agencies. Yes. This isn't a a new thing. This is a continuation. You said the fourth report. So it's not like this is just on the horizon. Uh, yet at the same time, we have President Trump uh, saying shortly after this, um, I've read some of it. Uh, I don't believe it. Uh, that can't be helpful. I mean, to, to put the best face on it possible, that can't be helpful. No, in fact, it is not. I think it is um, akin to suggesting, well, I, I don't believe in gravity or something kind of observable, measurable scientific phenomena. And so temperatures are changing and we have ways to understand what uh, part of the contributions to that temp temperature change has been the result of human actions, right? So the concentrations of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere are changing and the resulting impacts are, are kind of this wide array of things that we, we label climate change. I think where if we try to step back and ask how we got to a point where we could kind of be casually dismissed by the head of the country, we uh, for a long time separated a, 
the debates about the science where there was and continues to be uncertainty, right? We don't have it all figured out. And sometimes it's framed as the science is certain. Well, it is certain that things are changing and that we humans are doing it. The extent, the duration, how much, how soon. The role the clouds play in terms of holding heat in or reflecting sunlight back out before, right? So in some ways, some basic things that are because the systems are so complex. However, that's the scientific process, continually testing, continually advancing knowledge in incremental fashion while understanding there are things that we, we know. With a foundation, like you said, things we know, a foundation of knowledge that then you build up from or out from. Right. So there was, there was always testing and debate in a scientific sense. Separate from that conversation was what do you do about it? How do you respond? What are the policy responses, the economic responses? And there, there has been and will be and should be lots of debate about how you respond. Right? There'd be very reasonable people talking about what's the optimal mix of fuels or wh where and how do we move around with um, – a mix of public transportation and private cars and and making more walkable cities. I mean, there are lots of ways that quite reasonable people. The other big one that's going to challenge the environmental movement is on nuclear power. It's, it's a low-carbon energy source. It has a lot of downsides and a lot of reasons why people are fearful and skeptical. Um, but, you know, if it, uh, from my perspective, let it actually meet, be competitive without the high subsidies, see if it can compete with renewables. I don't think it will very well. But nevertheless, those are things that are debates. Part of the strategy then became more recently by those who didn't want to take climate change seriously in part because it would impact their bottom line. So the fossil fuel industries and the private sector, um, they, they started as a strategy casting doubt on the science as a political strategy in the debates for what we do about it. And so that's how we've gotten to a point where, uh, unfortunately, um, the identification too often is by party. And you know, some of that uh, is, I think, um, not overly simplistic to say, well, Al Gore is for it. He was a Democrat and I'm a Republican, so therefore I'm against it, right? These kind of very simple kind of tribal party identifications, if you're for it, I'm against it. And that's really unfortunate because it's something that um, is going to impact all of us and requires all of us to, to, to respond. Well, it, it, it becomes even more simplistic. We have the, the president with a dismissive, uh, I don't believe it, uh, without any discussion about it, just that simple statement. And then just a few days before that, he issues a tweet, and I quote, brutal and extended cold blast could shatter all records, whatever happened to global warming. Uh, now, that's even more simplistic to me than, than I don't believe it. Uh, it. Why are we breaking it down to such simplistic statements i mean i'm stretching for the word rhetorical statements or 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 uh, inflammatory kind of statements yeah well um i think there's a lot to say about um communication around a complex topic that to be fair has often been framed in 
in ways that are not very personal or not very real. So, well, the global average temperature change is going to go up one degree Celsius or two degrees Celsius, and that would be catastrophic. Well, that global average uh, hides all sorts of dramatic changes that can and will be felt very personally. And so the combination of not necessarily always telling a clear and meaningful story to people about how this will change opens up space for those who would be flippant and, and demagogue and use gimmicks like bringing a snowball to the, to the floor of the Senate to suggest, well, because there's snow outside today, we aren't seeing what is a long decades, hundreds of year patterns in terms of understanding what um, the, the earth systems, um, there's a big difference between the weather and the weather, what it's like out today and the climate, which is much longer patterns. And unfortunately, we're changing those much longer patterns and they're going in directions that um, are going to actually um, in, in some ways, global warming is a disservice because climate change is going to have lots of ups and downs. And so it's going to have lots of severe uh, cold weather <laughs> as well as warm weather um, that is also about those same dynamics. And um, snowballs on the floor of the Senate are not going to uh, be helpful. Well, I look at this language and sort of as a student of language throughout my career, I, I I see that uh, the president's referring again to global warming. Uh, that term hasn't been used in, in the past several years. It's, it's now climate change, which is more accurate because it's certainly broader based. Uh, global warming is, is not just what you're talking about. No, that, that's right. And there's a lot of debate. I mean, there, you will find some who want to take the – uh, feel we need to take the climate change issue more seriously, talking about um, global weirding and such. And I find that a little gimmicky as well in yeah. its own because weird suggests it's abnormal and you'll return to some sort of stasis. We are in a new reality that we have to understand that we need to adapt to and really take a hard look at – how we consume energy, where we live, how we move around, what we eat, what are the what constitutes that diet. All these things are – we're in a new space. And so it's not kind of like, well, it was weird today and it will be back to normal tomorrow. Um, and I think also what's helpful about the new reports that are coming out is it's bringing it down to a level of what it means in your place and space. And that will actually help where – you know, yes, we want an overarching umbrella term like climate change, but really, what's it mean for water and food production in your part of the world? What does it mean that for those communities that live on a coast? What's going to be a sustainable – what's sustainable infrastructure on a coast? Well, it may be that it's actually back from the coast and not on the coast, right? So those are really big questions, and they're not going away. From shorthand statements like – global warming's not happening because it's snowing or it's cold to, uh, you know, statements, uh, I, I, I don't believe it. Uh, then we go to the G20 and um, that just occurred uh, this, this past weekend and everybody except the United States signed on basically a communique that was a continuance of uh, the the at least the spirit of the Paris uh, Agreement, 
But the United States had to insert a, a statement, and here's the quote. The United States reiterates its decision to withdraw from the Paris Agreement and affirms its strong commitment to economic growth and energy access and security, utilizing all energy sources and technologies while protecting the environment. Now, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. But back in my old legal days, we would say those are weasel words, <laughs> which are really a bunch of words that don't say a whole heck of a lot. Talk about that. You know, unpack that for us a bit. Well, I think there are a number of things going on um, that in part you might say it's uh, particularly that last part, which suggests it's going to be okay for the environment to, to do. Yeah, to, while protecting the environment. Is really a, a kind of uh, an unrealistic have your cake and eat it too. Um, because there are, um, on the one hand, that to continue on with status quo, doing the things the way we do it, there are presently and will continue to be. Uh, dramatic environmental impacts that will become more and more painful, more and more disruptive, and more and more costly. Um, I think on the one hand, it sounds fantastic to say we're going to use all energy sources. And in fact, previous administration of different parties said an all of the above strategy. Um, at the same time, moved heavily against, to, against carbon intensive energy sources, particularly fossil fuels and particularly coal. Um, although, frankly, coal is, is um, being replaced by cheaper natural gas and mechanization and cost. It's, it's an economic factor, right? But um, in that sense, the, the notion that we are going to essentially ensure that we can uh, pump and drill and extract as fast as we want for relatively short-term economic gains, we're, we're mortgaging the future. So we're, we're discounting the future in terms of what the, those impacts are going to be. I think the other dimension that is not clear in that statement but is a direct impact of that statement is that whereas the United States was a primary leader, uh, even if sometimes a recalcitrant or stubborn one, but a leader in uh, international approaches to climate change, we are pulling back from that. That is a vacuum that is very much being filled. Um, yes, to some degree by the Europeans, but actually primarily by the Chinese. And the Chinese have decided um, in many ways, it seems, that they can be a leader because they see the climate change as having very real impacts and very real costs for them. So they want to take it seriously. They need to take it seriously. In fact, the regime even sees – the Communist Party sees it as critical for regime survival. But second, that there's a lot of money to be made. And so while uh, you may get more – the mine operator, coal mine operators in the United States may realize some short-term gain, the much bigger play is developing the technologies for a more green, sustainable, lower-carbon future. Which is ironic coming from China, a country that's known for its pollution and its health-related problems as a result. And will continue to be if they maintain the high economic targets. And they are, they are very much a, every, all of the above strategy all the time everywhere. But they are phasing out some of the dirtiest coal power plants and they are moving um, – 
to with big investments in both solar panel production and deployment and uh, lots of hydropower and hydro has lots of downsides as well as upsides. Um, but uh, nevertheless, they're they're doing it all and they are assuming uh, a mantle of leadership where, as perhaps would have been expected, at least in previous days, the response to be, well, if the United States is not going to play, then we're not going to play either. Because right. historically, the early industrializing countries are historically responsible for most of this. So if they're not going to pay, we're not going to play. Uh, but instead, there's uh, at a place now where the leaders of the world are making a clear-eyed, scientifically informed decision that this is a real problem that we all have to face. And so we have to come together to address it. We'll be back after this short message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it. The Scripps College was awarded $878,000 by the Ohio University Innovation Strategy Program for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of gear, processes, intellectual property, award-winning scholars, and partnerships for the project. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Let's, let's talk politics here. I know you're, you're a person of policy, and, uh, but yet that policy exists in a political world. How can we take this problem that we're facing and the, the details in this report and get it out of a partisan divide? Because as a layperson, I think as long as it remains in this partisan divide, we're going to get nowhere. Uh, we see environmental regulation after regulation being rolled back uh, with the promise of jobs and, and economic security. That's sort of the Republican and the Trump uh, mantra. We see Democrats on, on the other side of that. But this is not a partisan issue. Or am I wrong? You're not wrong. I, I think there are a couple steps. One is to remember our history. When did we pass these landmark environmental legislation and create things like the EPA? I think or it the was Council? under Republican it's, administration under Nixon, wasn't it? It certainly was. And it was done by a bipartisan coalition. In fact, speaking of politics, it was Nixon proactively taking an issue away from, from a, a distinguishing issue from Democratic challengers. Um, so for starters, uh, important to remember as to do with um, students who didn't live through that, that uh, it hasn't always been this split by party and that part of our challenge is to get back and find um, common ground in that space. And I think there are, some ways, there are some ways to do it. I think one of the ways is to go local. And that's about mayors and governors who are operating with not um, 
the kind of dictates of did I make a good speech on the floor of Congress, but real life problems and decisions. Where am I going to put that wastewater treatment plant? And is the water that levels that came before going to be the ones in the future? And if I build it there, will it actually do what I want it to do? They're making infrastructure decisions for 50, 100 years. And so if they don't take these issues into account, they're going to make really big mistakes, make their communities vulnerable and miss opportunities. So those who are on the ground having to deal with these changes now are the ones who are the innovators and taking it seriously and moving beyond a, a partisan, well, if you're, again, you're for it, I'm against it. Uh, second, the private sector with, a, in many respects, a clear-eyed assessment of costs and opportunities. And there too, um, we can we can talk about whether it's moving the chairs around on the deck of the Titanic, right. you know, to say, well, uh, a company that is all about selling you more of something has skylights and there's lower, you know, kind of energy efficiency gains. Right. But nevertheless, um, that's a conversation that they're willing to have in the language of numbers and and economics. I think it is. Involving communities who have a stake but aren't always thought of first in this context. So the faith community, right? We had Pope Francis a couple years back issue a papal encyclical where climate change was central to it. I recall. That said um, uh, God's creation is not here just to serve us. We are required to preserve and protect that creation. Be the stewards right. of that creation. So whether it's the kind of what's called creation care or some some notion that there's a moral obligation for us not to just use and throw out and despoil um, the natural world. And so I think those are all avenues where conversations continue to go on, where if we look again historically, the innovations sprung from. And I think finally then if we are, and this is hard, but if we are a little more flexible with what we call something, uh, how we enter a conversation, and we, we try to avoid the, the framing that falls back in easily to uh, us versus them, a D versus an R, a wealthy versus a poor, right? This is part of the lack of pickup is it's largely been a, a white, older, elite conversation, the, the U.S. environmental movement. It needs to be a much more inclusive conversation that we can actually find ways to, you know, talk with Midwest farmers about water and how, how, their, how their planting season has changed. And we can go with that and we can worry about set some of that other politics aside by what we call it and how we frame it. So perhaps framing it as problem solving as opposed to uh, total jobs versus uh, environment. Yeah, and that uh, economics versus environment has been um, an ongoing debate as to whether that's a zero-sum game, one win is another loss, or whether it can be a positive-sum game. And I think we see even on some of those, adding up some of those numbers, comparing the number of people employed in the renewable energy sector in Ohio versus the versus coal mining, for example. It's not that uh, just th there are definitely more in the renewable energy. And it's not that the coal mining jobs are unimportant because they're fewer. They're hugely important. 
important not just because they're jobs, but because it's about culture and place and sense of identity. And that needs to be recognized. And so part of part of the obligation for anyone taking these issues seriously is to not just do lip service to uh, transitions and uh, engaging those communities and finding ways forward for them that are economically and environmentally sustainable. And that has to be a real conversation that, frankly, we haven't taken very seriously either. I think the average person out there, if I can speak as the average person, um, we look at aberrations from what we have been used to, what we grew up with, what we've lived with, um, more and more severe hurricanes, uh, colder temperatures, uh, hotter temperatures in the summer, droughts in different parts of the country, the fires out west, the recent earthquake in, in Alaska. And we see those and go, something's going on. <laughs> something's going on. And the average person, I'm sure, links all of those and they aren't necessarily linked or perhaps not linked to the same thing, but we link all of those to something's going on here and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. My fear is that somebody will come along with something halfway credible or scientifically credible and say just hypothetically, hurricanes are not caused by the climate change and this is just a random fluke that we've had so many and they've been so severe. And then that will cause everybody again to start questioning mm -hmm. everything. Are my fears well placed? <laughs> well, I, I think there will there will be those doubters and alternative explanations. And in fact, really to succeed, it just have you just have to create doubt. Um, and so I think that will be a constant challenge. I think even perhaps uh, more likely would be in, on the solution set. So, for example, there's something called geoengineering that, as the name suggests, is a fundamental uh, engineering of the Earth system at a scale that we hitherto haven't, haven't done. And so the political logic would be, listen, we're not very good at reducing our carbon footprint. We don't want to make those painful, perceived to be painful changes in redefining the American dream in a lower consumption. So guess what? I have a technological solution. If you give my company a few billion dollars, we will do things like put iron in the ocean so it will absorb more CO2 and so it won't be then contributing to the heat in the atmosphere. Or we'll constantly fly airplanes and put sulfites in the upper atmosphere, essentially a layer of dust akin to what a volcano would do. And that'll reflect more of the sunlight and it'll lower the temperature. And we know in, that that works because, in part, because of volcanoes have done it. And that, yeah. that dust will, in fact, um, lower the temperatures. However, uh, what's scary about that is, um, you know, we really don't know what we're doing. 
and yeah, sorry, you know, South yeah. Asia, no monsoon for you today um, yeah. or this year. And, and so sorry about the kind of millions of people are going to be food insecure. Um, and, and there are relatively low barriers to entry. So I, I, I worry about silver bullet fixes that then become politically appealing because they don't require as much as much change. I do think there are ways in a positive sense to, to almost have a no regrets policy. We know things are changing. Some of it's certain, a lot of it's uncertain. So how do we build flexible and resilient systems that kind of no matter what the, where it ends up, we are building social and physical and economic systems that are resilient to taking these hits. Uh, and those can be the, the physical storms, those can be the economic impacts of them, those stresses, and finding ways not to back, bounce back to stasis, but evolve and be resilient in the face of them. And so those are ways that uh, we can adapt to this new warmer world that um, is going to be different, and we have to understand that is going to mean change. But, you know, I, I think like on a personal level, if I'm at a place now, and this is a, is a luxury to be able to think this, but I, I'm more interested in acquiring experiences than I am things. I find it much more enriching. So I have a – my definition of a good life is is just as much those experiences as it is a, acquiring things mm-hmm. that have lots of material consumption behind them. Right. And, and so those are the kinds of transitions we're going to have to make to um, – find ways to have a lighter carbon footprint and and try to bend the curve on those emissions and to adapt to to a, a warmer world. So there are going to be lots of appealing sidetracks, some of which engineered for us to, to keep us from making those transitions. But uh, hopefully we can, we can uh, uh, keep an eye on the prize of resilience and flexibility in the face of change. Well, this is going to be a convoluted question, so I tell you that uh, up front. As as you said, I think that we're looking for the silver bullet, that that uh, you know, the easy answer. Um, President Trump's suggestion that we take rakes out and rake the forest, and that'll keep the fires from happening or make them less severe. Uh, we're all we all, I think, gravitate towards simplistic answers. What I hear you saying as a um, policy advocate is that there are no simple answers and that what the answers are are probably integrated with each other that that make a a whole attack at at our our problems how do you translate that from policy to action jeff and and i know you talk about locally but how how does that happen in washington Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think I think there are no simple single answers. I think there are a lot of things that uh, are known to us, and so it's not uh, you know a developing a vaccine for a, a disease that we don't understand necessarily. Although certainly with greater investment, technological breakthroughs on on better and more efficient renewable energies um, would be most welcome. Um, in terms of the Breaking through in Washington, I think demonstrating that it works on the ground in places that matter and showing that it is not unobtainable, scary, 
or requiring that we all, you know, wear burlap and eat oatmeal every day, right? And and that it is it is um, demonstrated by innovators at these local and, st- and, and, and state level. I mean, mm-hmm. meaningful state. So California is hugely important, as it has been in the history of environmental progress, period, because it would be the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world if it was its own country. So as California goes on these things, typically the rest of the country, and so Washington has been a follower, Detroit and auto industry has been a follower, because they want access to that market. Now, that's certainly that California versus Washington is a challenging relationship right now, and <laughs> yes. there are plenty of lawsuits flying back and forth. Um, but I, I, I do think that um, uh, demonstrating that these changes, um, this evolution can happen, I think there is a greater awareness in part, unfortunately, because of the suffering that's come from these storms. Um, the U.S. has been slow to make big changes uh, compared to other countries. So heat waves and flooding really in, in, in France and in Germany really uh, took climate change out of a partisan divide and kind of convinced the populace that it had to be taken seriously. We haven't been so good at learning those those lessons. I think we have particularly effective folks who want to keep us from learning those lessons. Um, so I think you know we need the the pressure, and it'll be interesting. The certainly the new class of uh, congressmen and women going to Washington, some of them on the progressive side of the Democratic um, delegation, are talking about um, green jobs and a green economy, and putting these thing the economic and the environmental together. I think that will hopefully generate some healthy debates. Um, again, on the one hand, hope that we um, can avoid really simplistic versions of that, and but instead have um, a, a fuller debate as the options that we that we have. Um, I think it's going to it's going to take some time, given um, the in some ways those who are really invested in a carbon intensive economy are not going to go willingly yeah. into this transition. Although at the same time, many of these energy companies are now actually energy companies and not oil companies or coal companies. Many of them long ago saw these changes and have diversified and are, are much more um, flexible organizations than one might even think. But the problem solving from what I'm hearing you say is beyond just the science of climate change and, and uh, the generation of renewable energy. It's uh, regional problems with unemployment and displacement and economic hardship. If those aren't addressed, then uh, we're not really arriving at a appropriate solution. No, because um, if, if they're not addressed, then it means that the climate discussion is not out of its box. It's not an office down the hall where the climate change people deal with the climate change issue and the rest of us deal with other things. It is It runs the gamut from any sector we're talking about. It has something to do with it. It can be a threat. It can be an opportunity. It can be change. And so if we're not talking about the economy and how that interfaces, then we've lost. Then, then it's just a kind of conversation uh, among the scientists uh, with little connection to what it really means. And so it has to be a very integrated conversation. And in that way, too, there's a lot that we need 
to expect from those who've historically focused on climate. We have to have a much broader understanding of what is an appropriate response and what goes into adaptation in a warmer world. And so we have to, again, loosen our kind of stranglehold on appropriate labels and appropriate responses and look much more broadly and, and have a more inclusive debate and discussion. Well, Jeff, every time there's a climate change issue, I look forward to talking with you. And it seems like we have a lot of them on the horizon. I appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. Today, we've been talking about climate change policy with Dr. Jeffrey DeBelco. He's the former director of the Environmental Change and Security Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. He's also an associate dean of the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or you can review it through one of your podcast outlets. <laughs>